beautiful song. Thanks for jumping in and singing. I want to say a particular uh, welcome to those of you who are new here. We have guests almost every Sunday. My name is Alex, and we are thrilled if you're joining us here for the very first time, whether in person or online. What we are all about is connecting, connecting people to God, connecting people to each other, so together we can engage our world for good. We hope you experience little bits and pieces of all those things here this morning. Before we jump into what we're talking about today, just a quick word of thanks. Last week, uh, Chatham Serves, uh, one of our most sort of dynamic, robust, sort of energetic Chatham Serves we've had, particularly since COVID. So thanks to everybody who served our community together. Thanks for our, particularly our project leaders for the work you put into uh, engaging our world for good. We don't just want to talk about engaging for our, our world for good. We actually want to do it. Amen. Like, we're actually going to do this. We're actually going to make a difference in our community in whatever we possibly can. So thanks so much to everyone who was a part of last week's this beautiful uh, Chatham Service event. We're jumping back into our Way of Wisdom series. If you are just joining us, the problem we're tackling in the series is this. It has never been more complicated to be a human being than right here, right now. You got more stuff buzzing at you, pinging you, pulling you in all kinds of different directions, more things calling out to you, more information and misinformation and disinformation, more things claiming for your attention and your money and all these things, right? So what do you do? The result is we're sort of a little bit overwhelmed. Many of us feel swamped and anxious trying to navigate all the chaos and clutter. The way of wisdom helps us to find our way through the noise, the chaos, the clutter. Wisdom can engage all the different pieces out there and say, what do I need to pay attention to and what can I safely ignore? And how do I put things in their proper places resulting in peace? Wouldn't it be a great, a great thing to be a person at peace in the midst of all that chaos? The way of wisdom, it is strong and secure, but it's not especially safe. You walk the way of wisdom, it might take you places you'd rather not go. It might call you to take risks or have hard conversations you would rather not step out into. But it's good. The way of wisdom, it's full of God, full of the Lord, full of the presence of God and full of God's spirit. It is a life-giving way for you and all those who walk with you in it. We want to invite everyone, all of us together to walk in the way of wisdom. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might not know it's made up of a bunch of books, a bunch of books collected over thousands of years. And there's a whole section of those books called wisdom literature that people have looked to for thousands of years. And for some of you, that makes it old and that makes you less interested in being a part of that like it feels like well if it's old it can't possibly be relevant today right there's all kinds of things that people 5,000 years ago 4,000 years ago didn't have to deal with and so you're a little bit quick to dismiss old things because they're not particularly relevant to today and here's why I think you should give it a listen here's why I think you should be open to ancient wisdom because conventional wisdom has got us where we are right now right we're stressed overwhelmed we're divided we're like at each other it's contentious right it's not all bad we just not, we have a sense that it could be better and the way of wisdom is that better way i invite you to sort of step into and at least be open to a better way the way of wisdom now in the way of in, in sort of the wisdom literature sort of section of the bible and and, and, and kind of category uh, is this ancient book called proverbs the proverbs were mostly written by king solomon one of the ancient great kings of israel's day and he's mostly writing to his son who's, who's the prince who's going to be king someday and he wants his son the prince to be a great king a wise king so he writes all these sort of wisdom sort of sort of proverbs to help his son grow up to be a wise and good ruler and king and give us all wisdom for kind of what it means to live wisely now it's important to, 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 to name that what, what Solomon does is he outlines principles for wise 
living. And it's really important that we differentiate, distinguish between a promise in the scriptures and a principle in the scriptures, okay? A principle, a promise in the scripture has God's personal guarantee. God's promises come with God's personal guarantee. This is going to happen no matter what. So one of the greatest promises in the scriptures is if you give yourself over to the Lord Jesus, if you trust in Christ's death and resurrection for you, all your sins are washed away, no exceptions. Isn't that great news? All your sins, no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter what happened around you, doesn't matter what you have done, what other people think about you, all your sins are washed away when we trust in Christ Jesus. That's God's personal guarantee. He makes that promise. Now, so a promise that comes with God's personal guarantee. A principle is a general description of how the world works. It's generally true how the world works, how God designed the world, that if you live in this particular way, there are generally good outcomes. Now, the problem with principles is, of course, there's always exceptions. Because principles have to do with people, and people are complicated and messy. Not you, of course, but the people around you are messy and complicated, right? So there's always exceptions to principles, but this is the way that the world generally works, that if you live in this way, it results in these kinds of outcomes. Now, some of us have grown up in churches where we looked at principles, and they were taught as if they were a promise. And so we lived in this way, and it didn't quite turn out. It was one of those exceptions. It didn't turn out the way that you thought it would or the way that the Bible said it would. And so you start to wonder, did God sort of not deliver on his promise, or did I mess up somehow? So some of us end up carrying guilt or baggage or shame, like maybe I messed up somewhere along the way because this outcome didn't quite happen the way I thought it was supposed to. And some of us have carried guilt for a long, long, long time because we confused a principle with a promise. And so I want to invite all of us to sort of engage with the principles, particularly here in Proverbs, as they are. They're a general guideline for how the world design, is designed and how we are invited to live into it. So King Solomon writing these principles to his son about how the world should work. And one of the principles that the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs outlined, there's three major actors, three major characters, okay, in the book of Proverbs. And those, the, those three characters are the wicked, the wise, and the fool. Now, they, they go by sort of different names, but these are sort of umbrella categories, right? And now, obviously, the, the, peop, the world's more complicated than that. And there's, a, there's some ways where all of us have elements of the wise, the wicked, and the fool in us, right? There's times when I behave foolishly. You can ask my wife. There's times when I behave very selfishly, like, like someone who is wicked. And then there's times, by God's grace, where I'm wanting to grow in wisdom and walk the path of wisdom. But what the writer of Proverbs is saying is we can habituate a certain path to the point where you become so identified with that path. You, 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 you have practiced that path so much. You've absorbed those, those, those patterns, those decisions in your life that you become, you're not just walking the foolish path. You are a fool. You're not just walking, walking temporarily the wicked path. You are actually wicked. And you're not just walking or accidentally walking the path of wisdom. You're actually a wise human being because you've habituated, practiced sort of that path and that way of living. So King Solomon wants his son to be a wise ruler. That's one of his goals. One of his, goal, his goal number one is that he might become wise, that we might become wise people, right? Goal number one is that we might become wise people, not fools and not wicked, and that King Solomon's son might also become a wise ruler, not a fool, not wicked. But his second goal is this, that we might be awake and alert to the fool, to the wicked, because you don't want to get tangled up with the fool and the wicked. Many of you can look back on the darkest seasons of your lives and the hardest seasons of your lives. And maybe you made some decisions and you have responsibility for that. But many of us got tangled up with a fool or someone who was wicked. And it took us to dark, hard places, right? So how do we relate to the fact, to the very real fact, that there are foolish people around us and wicked people around us? And how do we grow in wisdom and not become those people ourselves? That's the invitation that we're going to wrestle with today. 
as we look at the, these three major actors in Proverbs, the wicked, the wise, and the fool. Now, what I find and, and for many of us is that the wicked person is the most uncomfortable person for many of us. Like that, so overeducated, polite people have a hard time identifying wicked people. So let's talk about wickedness, shall we? That'd be a fun place to start. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, King Solomon and the other folks who are writing are insistent that there are people who are wicked in the world and that they are people that have to be addressed and seen for what they are. And part of how we recognize who's wicked is what happens when they speak and when they act. So here's one of the Proverbs. Proverbs 11 says this, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. So the the upright bring blessing to a city, a nation, a family, a marriage, a school, a community. And then the wicked, through their actions, bring things down and destroy things. So here's how you know what a wicked person looks like. A wicked person delights to inflict pain, cause chaos, and or tear things down. Sometimes it's directed at individuals. Sometimes it's directed at community. Sometimes it's directed at a volunteer organization. Sometimes it's at work in a business. Sometimes it's at work in an extended family situation. Sometimes it happens in a church. Sometimes they do it to advance their own agenda, their own power, their own prestige, their own sort of applause and approval from the crowds. Sometimes they do it just for the fun of it. In the population, approximately 5% of the population are either narcissistic, sociopaths, psychopaths, or sadists, right? 5% of the population are going to fall in the sociopath, psychopath, narcissist, or sadist category. Now, Solomon didn't have those categories, obviously, all these years ago. But he's aware that these people are out there doing damage to the world around them. And you have to be awake to those people. Now, here's what I I find as I talk to to people in various ways about the people around them. A small percentage of us are sure everyone around you is wicked. Out to get you, right? you're, You're high defense, high alert. You're on the lookout for sort of wicked people everywhere. What I find in polite, overeducated society is that we tend to believe that no one's actually wicked. We're all just misunderstood. In fact, there's a whole musical called Wicked. And the whole musical is basically an apologetic to say there's actually no one wicked. Everyone's just misunderstood and how bad things happen to them. And that's how things turn out sideways. But the whole thing is actually a farce. What do you do if you don't think there are wicked people out there and then you meet one? You're not ready, you're shocked. Because by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, lifted up. By the blessing of the upright and the wise, a marriage is lifted up. By the blessing of the upright and the wise, children are lifted up. By the blessing of the upright and the wise, a community, a state, a nation, a business is lifted up. But through the words and actions of the wicked, it is torn down, brought into chaos, brought into suffering. Last week, I was getting uh, lunch with a woman whose husband passed away about a year and a half ago. And so about a year and a half ago, her husband passed away. So she's wading into the uh, sort of precarious world of online dating. Please pray for her. And one of the things she said was, I had to get really wise to the wicked really fast in the world of online dating. Because here's what happens to widows in online dating world. Men will Google what happened. How long ago did your husband pass away? Maybe you have money. And they'll Google your name and find out, oh, you just sold your house. Maybe you have more money. And they have debts. And there are all kinds of stories out there of all kinds of men who worked widows for months and months and months. In fact, she knew a story of a woman who had been drugged and then signed papers to hand over all her money to deal with this guy's debts. That, my friends, 
is wicked. It doesn't just happen to people seeking after widows to steal their money. They're out there in our communities and sometimes even in churches. So what do you do when you realize you're coming face to face with someone who is actually wicked? What do you do with someone who's coming face, when you come face to face with someone who's actually wicked? I'm going to borrow uh, these categories and some of these instructions from a great book called Necessary Endings by a guy named Henry Cloud. He's a Christian psychologist, and he takes these categories in Proverbs. He didn't invent these categories, but he has some interesting, playful, fun ways of helping us to figure out how do we actually engage with people who are wicked, who are foolish in our lives. And so for the wicked, here's what he says. I'm going to riff, riff off it. The wise response to the wicked, thick boundaries, cops, courts. Thick boundaries, cops, courts. You don't negotiate with terrorists. You don't negotiate with the wicked. You find ways to get space and separation. You find ways to make sure that the wicked don't have access to you and the things that matter with, for you and to you. Wicked people often come into churches because church people trust people. It's just how we are. It's a beautiful thing about us. But it can be exploited by wicked people. So if you're here today and you are on the wicked path, we love you, the Lord loves you, and you are invited to do one of two things. You can either repent of your wickedness. You're not going to exploit anyone here. You're not going to exploit a single woman, a single man. You're not going to exploit any of our kids. We're going to look out for you. We're looking out for them. You can either repent and join us as we attempt to walk on the path of wisdom with Jesus, and we will gladly welcome you, or you can leave. We don't want wickedness here. Thick boundaries. Cops courts. The woman I was talking with, she came up with some really thick boundaries pretty quick as she realized that this is people's games they were playing. So she leads now with two things. This is the thing she leads with. Anytime she meets a new single guy, gets matched on one of these things. She says, number one, you're not getting my money. And number two, I'm a committed Christian, so no sex outside of marriage. And so far, she's run everybody off with those two things. She's like, I'm fine with that. Good riddance. I'm running the creeps off. Don't want anything to do with you. Thick boundaries. Sometimes, no matter what kind of boundaries you put up, the people that are wicked don't respect your boundaries. That's when you have to call the cops, courts, jails, like restraining orders. Like, these things are necessary. They're essential, right? So when you, when you realize, I'm dealing with someone who is actually wicked, really important that you be wise in how you respond to those people. Again, they're not everywhere. About 5% of the population kind of falls in some of those categories, narcissists and psychopaths, sociopaths, those sort of things. But when you come face-to-face with those people, it's really important that you, not be, that you be awake to what needs to happen in order for you to walk the way of wisdom and be strong in those spaces. Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, what Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs typically are talking the most about are the wise and the fool. Those two are, are contrasted over and over and over again. And this is from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It's pretty much the thesis statement of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here's a good definition of the wise. Again, riffing off of necessary endings, they have this great definition of what the wise looks like. The wise receive the light and adjust mental maps and behavior to align with reality. The wise want to know what's true. And when the light shines, they look for the light. They seek the light. They long for feedback. They long to know what's true, what's right. And then they will reorient their mental maps, their priorities, their understanding of the world and what's most important in line with what's actually true. And then they will change their behavior to correspond with reality. So the wise person isn't necessarily the smartest person in the room. They're just the person who is most eager to know what's right and what's true and to respond correctly and faithfully. And so, of course... 
Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. That is knowing who God is and building your life around that. Now, the word fear has a bunch of negative connotations. In fact, I've had some back and forth with a few folks this week about what does fear mean and fear of the Lord mean and, and those sort of things. And I thought Brian Emmett did a great job on this week's Connect devotional, kind of teasing out what, what fear actually means in the biblical context with fear of the Lord. Uh, so we had a connected devotional. If you're not getting that, five days a week, we do an in-house devotional. It's on the passage we're looking at and uh, in-house team of writers. If you're not getting that over email, just give us your email address and say, I want to get the Connect devotional and we'll email it to you. It's a great way to kind of be in touch with what God's doing in our community. So this past week, Brian had this great explanation of what the fear of the Lord actually means or looks like. He wrote this. In some ways, our English translation of the Hebrew is unfortunate. When we see or hear the word fear, our first instinct is to move away. If we fear flying, we never board an airplane. If we fear heights, we never climb above solid ground. But this doesn't work with the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to move towards God, not away. To focus our attention more on the Lord than we do on other things, other voices. To fear the Lord means that we learn how to wait on God's initiative and direction, wait on God's timing. To fear the Lord means that we learn to care far more about what God thinks of what we're doing and care less about the opinions of others. So my friends, when you come face to face with the reality of God, that God exists, that God is the most powerful being in the universe. We're just saying he created the sun, moon, and the stars. When we come face to face with God's immense power, his immense love, and the reality that all of us, all of us, all of us are going to come face to face with the God of the universe and have to answer questions of how we stewarded the resources he entrusted to us. The only wise thing is to camp out in the fear of the Lord, that is to move towards God, focus on God, care more about what God thinks than what people think or say. See, when you come face to face with the reality of God, you say, oh my goodness, I used to think my career was the most important thing. Not true anymore. I used to think my family was the most important thing. Family's great, career's great. Not true anymore. I used to think money was the most important thing. Nothing wrong with money. Not the most important thing. I used to think, I used to think my reputation was the most important thing. No more. God. God. God himself is the most important thing. The wise see that reality and reorient their internal kind of maps of what matters most and then adjust their behavior according to the larger reality of God. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But of course it has other applications as well. Wisdom is all about saying what's true and then what else is true and how do I, how do I live according to the reality around me and adjust my behavior and my internal maps accordingly. In fact, throughout the, the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs emphasizes how important it is to be teachable, to be correctable. Here's a passage from Proverbs 15, 31. says this, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Let's call life-giving correction anything that helps you to be more in touch with reality. Right? Anything that helps you be more in touch with the reality is life-giving Correction. Life-giving correction comes alongside you and says, hey, you know what? You're missing something. Let me pull back the curtain. Let me shine a light. Let me help you see what is true. Now, my friends, here's my question. Who wouldn't want that? We like life-giving friends. We like life-giving work. We like life-giving hobbies. We like life-giving exercise. Who wouldn't want life-giving correction? Who wouldn't want someone to come alongside and say, hey, let me help you see what's actually true here in this situation? I want to suggest to you that I resist life-giving correction all the time, unfortunately. 
And there's almost always two main things at work, pride and the bad kind of fear. When pride and the bad kind of fear are at work in your life, you are going to be resistant to life-giving correction. Pride says, I don't need you. I got it all figured out. I don't need anyone else to help me see reality. I know what reality is. Pride says, I can figure this out. I got my handle on things. I don't need anyone or anything else. I'm pushing everything else away, all of the voices away. I know, and I don't need anyone to help me to know. You let the voice of pride drive your life. You will not end up on the way of wisdom because whoever he's life-giving correction is the one who's at home among the wise. Meanwhile, there's that bad kind of fear, right? There's the fear of the Lord, which is good fear. Then there's the, there's the fear of having to deal with stuff I'd rather not deal with. Like, if, if the light gets shined on my family dynamic, maybe I'm going to have to confront someone I don't want to have to confront. Maybe I have to out a family secret I don't want to have to out. Maybe I'm going to have to deal with something in my own character that's enabled something to unfold. Maybe I'm going to sort of step into a conflict or a situation I'd rather just leave alone. I'd rather put my head in the sand and not deal with it. That's called willful blindness, right? That fear that I'm going to have to deal with something hard. And so I'd rather not hear life-giving correction. I'd rather just sort of stay in my blissful ignorance. Pride and fear will keep you from the path of wisdom. And so, my friends, I want to urge you this morning. Do not let pride or fear hijack your life and keep you from the way of wisdom. Instead, seek out life-giving correction. Because whoever seeks out life-giving correction and receives it will be at home among the wise. You want to cultivate a heart that is eager for reality and for truth because life-giving correction is life-giving. My friends, here's the good news. Reality is your friend. Doesn't always feel like it initially, but reality and facts, those are your friends. Seek those out. Be eager for those. And, and then when, when those things come, don't duck, right? But actually be open to what the Lord is doing. This is in direct contrast to the fool from Proverbs 1-7 that we read earlier, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here's what's true. The wise seek out the light and actually want to know what's true, but the fool is the exact opposite. So here's the definition of the fool. The fool refuses to adjust to reality. Instead, they demand that reality adjust to them. You know anybody like this? The fool refuses to deal with or adjust to reality. Instead... They demand that reality just for them. The fool's never wrong. It's always someone else's fault. Always something that someone else happened. Always some other situation. The fool never rejects feedback, rejects reality. They sort of demand that reality kind of conform to who they are. One of the most successful kind of TV categories of the last 30 years has been reality talent shows. You've seen these, right? Like American Idol, America's Got Talent. All these people who, who bring their talents to be judged by celebrity judges. And now in the early rounds of the auditions, there's almost always a singer who thinks they can sing. And the only way you put yourself in front of celebrity judges is if you are convinced that you are an awesome singer. And what they'll do is they'll show a few of these people who think that they're great singers, and as soon as they open their mouth, it's clear the only person that doesn't know the truth is them. And the judges will make fun of them for a little bit, and then they leave, and they'll often be interviewed afterwards, talk about how great they are, how awesome they are. And in some ways, it's cruel because the TV cameras and the network is just leveraging them for all of us to laugh at them. But my friends, they are the fool. They refuse to know what is clear to now everyone in America, that they can't sing. The fool refuses to see what's true, refuses to adjust their lives to and their 
priorities to what's actually true, to reality. Now, the trick is, we all play the fool sometimes. We all play the fool. All of us at some point in our lives, in different areas of our lives, we will sort of play the part where we think that we've got a handle on reality and we refuse to hear someone correcting us. So one of the really helpful questions to be asking on the way of wisdom is to ask this question for yourself, invite other people to ask it, and even to pray it, uh, Lord, where in my life am I currently playing the fool? Where in my life am I currently demanding that reality conform to me? Where am I ducking and avoiding the light? Where am I sort of hoping and praying that things just kind of fix themselves and not willing to adjust my own behavior or deal with my own character issues or wade into and clean up a mess that I actually made? God, is there a place where I am currently playing the fool? Ask someone that loves you and that you trust, is there a place where I'm currently playing the fool? And here's the deal. When you start to see some place where you're playing the fool, don't duck. Don't avoid it. Do the next wise thing. The next wise thing is the, is the best thing you can do to help produce outcomes out of the range of the best possible outcomes. Right? You can't control every outcome. You, have no, you don't have control all, over all the outcomes. But you can act wisely, which for your part can contribute to the, uh, the range of the best possible outcomes. So don't duck. When you, when you see a place where you realize, I'm playing the fool here. I'm sort of ignoring. I don't want to see reality. I don't want to see light in my business, in my workplace, in my family, in my family dysfunction. I'm playing the fool. I'm playing the fool. If there's a place where you see it, then start to pray, God, is there a way that you would have me to step in with wisdom to bring order out of the chaos, to help clean up some of that mess and heal some of the brokenness. Now, it's one thing if you want to deal with yourself, right? Where am I playing the fool? It's another thing if you have to deal with someone else who's a fool. What do you do if you have an adult child who's a fool? Wreckage behind them everywhere they go, and they refuse to own it, refuse to see it, refuse to see their part in it. What do you do if you're being supervised or managed by a fool? Which, yes, happened to spew you, yes. What do you do if you're supervising someone who's a fool? You're managing someone who's a fool. What do you do if you're married to someone who's a fool? Don't say anything. The right beside you. What do you do, right? It's like, because here's the deal, you know, with the wicked, it was like, don't negotiate with terrorists, like, firm firewalls, boundaries, like, cops, courts, all those sort of things. With the fool, you're often already in a relationship, or you're forced to be in a relationship. Like, hey, if you have a parent who was a fool, literally, it's really hard on you. You have a boss, you don't have much control over that. What do you do with someone who is a fool. How do you negotiate? How do you, how do you live in such a way that you don't enable foolishness? Now, here's the problem that we end up having. When we're in relationship with someone who's a fool, we often end up having the same conversation over and over and over again, right? Because fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want, they're not willing to respond to the reality that you're trying to show to them. So here's, one, here's the suggestion for how to relate to a fool. You don't, you stop talking about the problem. And you start talking about how talking about the problem isn't fixing the problem. And then you change how you relate to them and change the behavior. When you're in, a relationship, when you're in a conversation with a fool and they keep having the same problem over and over and over again and they won't respond and they won't listen and they don't want to hear it, they don't want to deal with reality, you stop. At some point you realize talking to you about this problem is not fixing the problem. I want to stop talking about that problem. I want to talk about how talking about it isn't fixing the problem. And then I want to change how we're relating to each other so I don't enable you anymore. So let's say you've got a grown son. Can't hold down a job. Runs through jobs like people run through underwear. Every six months, nine months, he gets fired because temper issues. He's late all the time. He's, he, and he's, a, he's kind of a mess, and he can't own any of the thing. 
So here's what you say to your grown son who has a train wreck and goes through jobs over and over again and you keep having to pay his bills because he keeps losing jobs. Here's what you say. I don't want to talk about you and the fact that you've got problems at work anymore. I'm going to talk about the fact that talking about you and your problems at work is not fixing the problem. That's the problem now. And here's what's happened from here on out. I'm not bailing you out anymore. I'm not going to enable your foolish behavior. I'm changing how I'm relating to you. Because it's clear until you get a hold of your anger problem and your organizational problem and your relational issues, you're not going to be able to hold down a job. I'm going to bless you by not enabling foolish behavior anymore. I want to fix this situation. It's not going to be fixed by talking about it anymore. It's going to be fixed by how you making changes to align with reality. Because fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's how you know you're dealing with a fool. They won't hear reality. And so talking about the problem isn't going to fix it. You have to change how you're talking about things, how you're relating to that person. Proverbs 28 talks about this in a different kind of a way. He says this, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. See, the foolish are only self-referential. I know what's true. I know what's right. And I'm the one who knows what's true and what's right. And no one else can tell me what's true and what's right. I'm the one who's got the handle on reality. No one else does. I can figure things out and no one else can. Now, here's the problem with this. This says that wisdom is external to you. That wisdom is outside you. Not that you don't have any wisdom, but that wisdom is generally outside of you. And this is in direct contrast to every Disney movie for the last 50 years. Every Disney movie for the last 50 years has told you, you just need to follow your heart. That's where wisdom is found. And the problem is not your heart. The problem is externals, right? So here's what you need to do. You need to cast off your family has corrupted you. They got family expectations that aren't good. There's societal expectations that aren't good. And what you need to do is cast off all those expectations and all those sort of mores and sort of morals and conventional wisdom. You need to cast all that off and you need to follow your heart. Now here's the thing. There's a kernel of truth to it. Some families are corrupting, unfortunately. Some societal expectations, 100%, hijack people and drive them in ways that put expectations that aren't true, aren't healthy. So yes, there are external things that are broken, and that's, that's, that's why it's so believable. But, but here's the deal. Following your heart is not the solution to that problem. Let me ask you, on what day in the last year has your heart been the infallible guide to wisdom, joy, and peace? What day in the last 365 has your heart been the infallible perfect guide to wisdom, joy, peace? Which version of your heart should you follow? What voices in your head do you need to listen to and what voices in your head do you need to put away to actually walk in the way of wisdom? There is wisdom inside you. It's just not all the wisdom. There is a way of wisdom that's outside of you, that's external to you. The fool despises and refuses to hear the, 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 the challenge to walk in the way of wisdom external to them. They are only self-referential. They think that they're the only ones who know the way of wisdom and so they get lost and they remain the fool, sometimes their entire lives. You don't want to live that life, my friends. Walk in the way of wisdom. That often comes with company. And so this is the last passage we'll look at, one of the most famous Proverbs of all time. To walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. See, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout Proverbs especially, wisdom is exalted as more valuable than gold, silver, diamonds. Wisdom is better than a good reputation. Wisdom is better than what people think about you and the applause and the approval and the affirmation of any number of people. Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. And then that wisdom tradition comes to a head in Jesus, who is wisdom in flesh. And the scriptures declare, it is worth it for you to drop everything else and chase after and seek after wisdom. If this is true, 
The way that you become wise is by walking with the wise, becoming a person who finds other wise people who are full of God's spirit, full of God's wisdom, who know the scriptures, who know the way of Jesus, and who are learning by God's grace to walk in the path of wisdom. And so if you're a person who's kind of just visiting here, kind of here occasionally, we're so, so glad you're here, but I'm, we're going to keep inviting you to step in, step in, step into community. Because you don't grow in wisdom by just sitting among the wise. You grow in wisdom by walking with the wise, doing life together with the wise, becoming wise as you share in life together. So for as long as we're a church and as long as you're visiting, and man, for some of you, like just coming to church is like a miracle, right? For some of you, it's like a, a big step and maybe you're dragged here by a spouse or a friend who kind of keeps bugging you to come or maybe it's just been a long time. Uh, last week, two weeks ago, I met someone, never been to church before in her life. Her parents didn't think much about church. She'd never been to church ever, ever, ever. And she showed up. She's like, this is fantastic. Bless the Lord that someone loved her enough to invite her to church. So glad. Like, you're welcome here, welcome here, welcome here. But here's the deal. What I want to do, we're going to go is like, I want to I wanna invite you to go from I attend church there to I belong to that community, to those are my people. I know a few of them know me, and I know a few of them. From I show up at church occasionally, to this is my community, and I'm learning to walk with this community imperfectly, full of people who are working this out, but by God's grace, becoming wise as I walk with other people who are also walking in the way of wisdom, the way of Jesus, because those who walk with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And some of us have no choice in the matter with the fools. Some of you were born to fools. Some of you have to work for a fool. You got a job. You got a coworker. They're foolish. You have, no, you have no control over it, but you have some control over who you do life with. You have some choices to make. And the call, the invitation from the scriptures is to walk with the wise, do life together with the wise, and so become wise and ultimately grow up into the wisdom of Jesus. King Solomon and his buddies, three categories of people, the wicked, the wise, and the fool. He wants us to be awake to these people and be aware of how to relate to them and how to become the people who are wise, to cast off our own foolishness and our own wickedness, to walk in the path of wisdom. So we tease up these things, and I want to kind of gather this up as we go through today's wildly important take-homes. First off, to know what the wicked look like. They delight to inflict pain, cause chaos, and or tear down. You don't negotiate with the wicked. You have thick boundaries, call cops, put things in place to make sure that they don't have access to you or things and people that are valuable and that you love. How you deal with wicked, be awake to the wicked, that you set up these boundaries as best you possibly can. And then there's the wise. The wise receives light, looks for the light, longs for reality, adjusts their internal maps, and changes behavior in line with that reality. That starts with the fear of the Lord, that healthy, good fear that draws us deeper into who God is. Because we recognize God is God and I'm not. And man, these other things I thought were super important, but they're not. And then I seek life-giving correct correction. Don't let pride and fear keep you off the path of wisdom. And then look out for the fool. The fool demands that reality just to them. I want to invite you to ask and pray. Lord, is there a place where I'm playing the fool? Is there a place where I am being foolish and how I'm relating to reality? And then look for fools because all of us have to deal with fools at points in our lives. The way that you deal with a fool is you don't talk to them about the thing anymore because they don't want to hear correction and, and sort of change according to reality. They just want to do whatever they want to do. So you stop talking about the problem. You start talking about how talking about the problem isn't fixing the problem. And then you adjust how you relate to them in some way, shape, or form because you don't want to enable the fool. And then the scriptures invite us to be people who walk with the wise and so become people who are wise. And as we gather around the communion table here the first week of the month, we gather around the one who is all wisdom, and who very wisely, on his last night on earth, 
gave us tangible, concrete reminders of his grace and his love. That we might receive his generous love and correction. That we might be a people who are becoming wise and growing up into his grace and mercy. That we step into his goodness and love for us. The way, one of the ways you become wise is you worship the one who is the all-knowing wise one. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took... He did what he's always doing. He took ordinary things and made them extraordinary. He took ordinary bread and he broke it. So this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. His disciples did not know that this was the wisdom of God poured out onto the earth to heal the earth once and for all, to heal all people, to forgive all people, to restore all people once and for all. But the night unfolded like a nightmare. Jesus is arrested, crucified. His friends all scatter. They're stuck in a spot of grief, mourning, shame. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. That the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we gather together with Christians literally all over the globe to eat this meal, to celebrate it. It's one, of the most, it's, it's one of the most international events that happens every Sunday all over the globe. There's people that don't look anything like us, that speak all kinds of different languages, that are worshiping the same Jesus, gathering around the same table, declaring these same truths. Jesus is Lord. Here's our salvation. Here is the wisdom of God broken for us, poured out for us, that we might become men and women who are birthed into wisdom and become the people of God's wisdom here in our everyday lives. As we move to our time of communion, just a few logistics. We've got three stations, two up front, one in the back. The bread is gluten-free, the cup is grape juice, so everyone's invited and it's easy, easily accessible. If you have declared that Jesus is Lord and been baptized in a church somewhere, we invite you to come to these tables and celebrate the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you have not been baptized, if you've not declared that Jesus is Lord, we're so glad you're here. We just invite you to pass on this and to reflect on what it is that we're celebrating, what it is we're entering in, and what it might mean for you here. We're going to invite you to come up to the stations here in just a minute to get the elements and then bring them back to your seats and we'll eat and drink together. As we move to our time of communion, uh, as we always do, the prayer room is open and available. They're right through there. There's Michael over there. The rest of the team is over there. This morning, if you need prayer for anything, medical problems, marriage problems, stuff going on at work, stuff going on at home, your kids are going off the rails. If you need prayer for anything, that team is there to pray for you. Uh, I want to share the good news. A couple weeks ago, we had a healing happen here at Chatham Community Church with someone who was battling like a serious, serious, serious illness. He'd been, he was prayed for by that team, by a few others along the way over a couple weeks. And the doctor said either it was a mistake or it's a miracle. We prefer to say glory to God who did this. That's right. Amen. That's right. That's right. It doesn't happen always. I wish it happened more often. By God's grace, we're praying into, we're pressing into what does it mean that the Lord might heal people. But I'll, I just want to tell you that prayer is actually effective. It actually does things. It's not just wishful thinking out loud. It actually changes lives, changes futures, gives futures back that we thought were going to be gone forever. So this morning, if you need prayer, I'm just telling you the Lord's doing something in that prayer room right now. So I want to invite you to step into it, be open to it, and see what the Lord might do in your life. It might, be, might just surprise you. I'm going to pray. Invite you to go to the stations whenever you're ready. We're going to sing a song. And then again, I want you to bring the elements back and we'll eat and drink together. Go get prayer if you need anything at all. Let's pray as we move now to our time of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the wisdom of God. 
And as we come to these, the table here, and as we enter into this space, there's a counterintuitive wisdom on display that God so loved the world that he didn't come and conquer the world through military might. He came and saved the world through laying down his life, putting on flesh. Lord, this is grace. This is love. This is your wisdom. So we want to be open to it. We want to receive it. And we want it to change us. Help us to align our internal maps and worlds to your reality. Help us to change our behavior in line with your reality. We ask, Lord Jesus, that this reality, your body, your blood, shed and sacrificed for us, would that remake us inside and out? We ask in the strong mighty name of Jesus, who sings out grace and mercy and forgiveness over all of us. Would we receive that song of grace, mercy, and forgiveness now through these elements? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Mm -hmm.